is to receive it by faith, to receive it by faith as a gift from God. And so um, he's going to continue into chapter 2 as talking about more of how we are unrighteous. But he knows that as, as, uh, as, as he focuses on so much wickedness in chapter 1, he realizes that as he's writing to these people in the church in Rome, that there are going to be a bunch of moral people there. There's going to be a bunch of religious people um, a lot of people who have Jewish backgrounds and, uh, and are very religious. And he realizes that as they listen to chapter one, they're going to be, and I mentioned this last week, they're going to be like, oh, yep, the world is awful. These people are wicked. All of these people out there, they're just terrible, terrible, terrible. And, uh, and the problem with that is that if you're only looking at others and their failings, then you miss the opportunity to meet Jesus. You miss the opportunity to meet Jesus in his sufficiency and his love and his grace. If you're not uh, willing to look at your own sin and your need for forgiveness, then you're not going to be able to connect with the gospel and understand the gospel and receive the gospel that Paul is so excited about. And so this is who he addresses in chapter 2. The moral people, the religious people, the churchy people. So guess what? He says this to you as you sit here in church, okay? So listen to God's word as I read from Romans chapter 2. I'm starting in verse 1 and going right through the end here. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace For everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. By nature, do what the law requires. I'm sorry, for one Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, 
You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look at these words, that you would open our eyes, that your spirit would work a miracle in our hearts, that we would see things as they are, that we would see ourselves as we are, and that we would see our need for you, and more than anything else, that we would see Jesus. We pray this this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you think of God leading you somewhere, um, what is the picture that comes to mind most readily for you? And I think when you think of God leading you, uh, what is the picture that comes to mind? For me, my mind gravitates towards Psalm 23, the image of the shepherd who leads us by quiet waters and green pastures, you know? It's in my mind, when I think of God leading me, I think of God leading me to a place of peace and tranquility where all is right with the world, you know, and I can rest. That's the the immediate picture I think of when I think of God leading me. Um, But as you look at Romans chapter 2, I think there's absolutely biblical value in, in understanding that that's one of the places that God leads us to, a place of peace and tranquility and rest. But as you look at Romans chapter 2, we find out that he wants to lead us somewhere else as well. Maybe this is the first place he wants to lead us. If you look at verse 4 in chapter 2, where does God want to lead us? It says that he wants to lead us to repentance. That's where God wants to lead us. Maybe that's the very first place he wants to lead us. Before he leads us to a place of peace and tranquility and rest, he wants to lead us to repentance. A place of repentance. What is repentance? Well, repentance, I would say, isn't necessarily a place of green pastures and quiet waters. Repentance is probably more of a painful thing, an uncomfortable thing, a difficult thing. Repentance is a place where we see the, the ugliness of our hearts, where we see the, uh, just the, the ugliness of our own sin and our own failure, and we feel sorrow and grief about it. And, and a repentance is a place where we feel such grief and sorrow over our own um, failure and wrongness that we want to turn to God that we want to turn to God and we want to change and become somebody different. 
that's not a place of peace and tranquility. <laughs> to be grieving and, and sorrowful over how I am not right and thinking that I need to be someone different and turning from that. But that seems to be where God wants to lead us if you look at chapter two of Romans. He wants to lead us to repentance. And this is the thing, because repentance is not necessarily an easy thing or a fun thing, pretty much every single one of us resists going there. We resist God leading us to repentance. We'd rather go anywhere else than repentance. And yet, repentance, I mean, in, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter says his, you know, this incredible sermon to, to all these people, he says, what does he say to them? He says, repent and be baptized. Repentance is the first step into coming to know God as we were meant to know him. Repentance is the first step in understanding who God is and what he wants to do with us. Repentance is the first step in, in understanding the gospel and the goodness of God. And if we're not willing to go to that place, then we're going to miss the gospel entirely. We're going to miss it entirely. And if we miss the gospel, we miss God. And so we need to go there. Not just one time to become a Christian. We need to go there every day of our lives. We need to learn to, to, learn to, to live a lifestyle of repentance. Of looking at our own hearts and our own sin and how we need to change and confessing it and seeking God's forgiveness and turning from it and being changed. We need to live a lifestyle of repentance. And yet I said, you know, we, we all tend to not want to go there. We, not, we don't want to be led by God. And, I, and I, as I look at this passage, I actually see four things that we lean towards doing rather than repentance, or four things that keep us from repenting, that keep us from following God to a place of repentance in each of our lives. First of all, I think we're, we're way too convinced that God's wrath is not real. I've often noticed, have you noticed that... Uh, Young people, and especially kids, they seem to think that they're invincible. And as I get older and older, all I see everywhere is just risk and potential for danger and harm, you know? Everywhere, I'm, I'm just envisioning what could go wrong and how somebody could get hurt. Kids are not afflicted with that, you know, condition. They just, they just think they're invincible. The, the way, you know, young people, when they first get their license, the way they tend to drive their cars. I was there at one point in my life. Um, you know, as, as little kids climb trees with reckless abandon, right? And I'm watching them, I'm like, dig, dig, dig. and they're just like, you know, prancing out on this little tiny thin branch, not even holding on to anything. They think they're invincible. They don't think anything bad could ever happen to them. They don't think about the consequences at all. And I think it's a real picture of all of us when it comes to the judgment of God. Um, in theory, yeah, we read the Bible and we think about the fact that God is just and he judges us. But in practical life, how often do we think about the fact that there are consequences to everything that we do? Everything. Um, he, he says in here in verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think that you're going to escape? In verse 5, he, he reminds us of the reality of God's wrath. He's like, 
because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. As we live our lives without thinking about the judgment of God, as we live our lives in the minute details of our lives without thinking about the judgment of God, we're actually storing up God's wrath. That's scary to think about. And then he goes into this, this passage, starting in verse 6, and he says, He will render to each one according to his works. And he says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And here it gets, as I've read this before, I, it gets confusing, right? Because hasn't Paul just earlier talked about the gospel, how you need to... You need to be righteous, like the only way you become righteous is by faith. He seems to be saying something contradictory here. That maybe there's a way of becoming righteous by really striving to do as much good as we can. You know? That God's going to give us eternal life if only we will patiently just really work hard at being perfect. <laughs> well, I think... He says it so often in so many ways. The righteous will live by faith. It's not by works, Ephesians 2, right? It's not by works. He says it clearly. So what is he saying here? Well, I think chapter 2 is entirely about the fact that God is just in his judgment. And so I think one of the things he's pointing out here is that, listen, your actions have consequences, Do you want to see glory and honor and immortality by doing perfectly? How's that going so far? <laughs> but the reality is what we need to realize, the reason he's telling us this is because in verse 11 he says, God shows no partiality. Nobody's going to get away scot-free. We need to realize that everything we do has a consequence to it. Everything we do, we must answer for. Everything. That is heavy. Right? And this is true for those who, you know, the, the religious people who have the law or those people who don't have the law, as he continues in verse 12, you know? He says, even people who, don't, who haven't grown up in the church, who haven't grown up with religion and all of these laws, they're a law to themselves. God is implanted even in their conscience and in their behavior, you know, uh, this, this sense that of what is right and wrong. And they are accountable as well whether you've grown up in the church or not. We are all accountable to God. His wrath is real. His judgment is real. Every single thing, every part of our life, there's a consequence to it, and we need to remember that. If, if only we would remember that, that might move us in the direction of repentance a little more often, wouldn't it? Secondly, we're too busy judging others. We're way too busy judging others to think about our own hearts and, and what's wrong with ourselves. This is the first thing that Paul addresses in this chapter. He says, You have no excuse, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment you condemn yourself, because you, you the judge, practice the very same things. This is one of the things that keeps us from looking at ourselves. We are so preoccupied with looking how everybody else around us is not doing what they should. And as I said before, that was the big thing with last, as we were talking last week, this, this chapter, the chapter one is like, oh, there's so much wickedness, yeah. And it's easy for us to be like, yep, all those people are terrible. But that's not what he's trying to say. He's, he's trying to get us to look at ourselves. To look at ourselves. 
because it's too easy. We're experts at evaluating everyone else, at evaluating everybody except ourselves without realizing that we ourselves are doing the very same things that we judge everybody else for. I mean, have you noticed that? That often, and again, you notice this about other people, right? This person judges this other person for something that that person is constantly doing. But we see this in all of life. I mean, you see it in the sports world all the time. I watch a lot of soccer, and one of the things that, you know, teams that are not as good do to older, uh, better teams is they try to waste time. They stall. That every chance they get, if the ball goes out of bounds, they take a really long time to throw the ball in. If the ball gets kicked out, if there's like a free kick or something, they take a really long time. And when a, when a visiting team is, is wasting time, the entire stadium gets really offended. And they get angry. And they're constantly like booing them to get them to move along quicker. And the whole, all of the, the, the opposing team is getting angry. They're like constantly like looking at the ref. Look, look at the time. These guys are wasting time. But then as soon as the team goes ahead, as soon as the other team goes ahead, they immediately start falling on the ground and wasting time themselves. And they think nothing of it. Of it. You know, that's just the way you play the game, you know? It's not wrong. But that's what we do in our regular lives. I mean, you, you probably notice it as you drive. Hopefully, maybe you notice it. as I notice it as I drive. I get so angry at this guy who's like, I'm like waiting in line patiently to get off on the, on the off-ramp and then somebody comes in and doesn't wait and then cuts in front of me. Or I like, I like really stay on the bumper of the guy so that guy can't get in, you know? Because it's so wrong to do that. And then I find myself doing that as well. I'm like, I'm not really slowing anybody down. I just time it perfectly. But we do it, and, but we don't just do it. You know, we do it all the time. We do it in our families. The people that we live with, we're constantly judging the people around us, not pulling their weight, not doing enough to serve everybody else, not listening. You ever judge somebody else for not listening to you? I do that sometimes. I'm like the worst listener in the world. But we do. We, we, we are so preoccupied with judging everybody else around us that it becomes easy to ignore our own heart, to ignore the ways that we fail. And then third, we're too preoccupied with our spiritual badges. In verse 17, Paul specifically addresses those who are Jewish, right? He says, but if you call yourself a Jew, so the Christian church in Rome is full of people with a Jewish background, right? And so they followed all of the Jewish rules and regulations, but they've now come to believe in Jesus. So he's addressing these people. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth. And then he also starts talking about circumcision. You know, you have this circumcision, this badge that says you are part of the people of God. They fail to notice the fact that they're failing to keep the law because they're, they're so preoccupied with the fact that they have all of these markers, these badges that say, yeah, I'm okay. I'm doing fine. I, I, was, a, I was a Cub Scout for like one year when I was young. And uh, I, one thing I remember from Cub Scouts is that there were all these badges that you could get. You know, you had to earn there's all these different things that you could get, and I'm probably going to get them wrong, but yeah, you could get like a first aid badge and a fire safety badge and an equestrian badge and a chef badge. And I, not that I got any of these, but, uh, but then you could get, you know, the, the lion badge, the tiger badge, the wolf badge. I just wanted a wolf badge so bad. That was so cool that you could get, you know, and it was a patch that you put on your uniform, and 
you could feel really cool because you had more and more badges. I was like, that would have been so awesome. Too bad I didn't stick around long enough to get any of them, really. But I think that's what we do, especially as church people, as religious people. We have all these badges that we get that we don't necessarily hand them out and sew them on our shirt and bring them to church, but we have them in our mind, you know. The, just the I'm, I'm a Christian badge. Um, or maybe I'm a born-again Christian badge. Or maybe I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a member of Hope Church badge. I, I'm, a, I'm a regular attender. I go like every week. I, I come weekly badge. I volunteer as a greeter badge. A worship team badge. Sunday school teacher badge. Nursery worker badge. I mean, that's really something, right? We have all these badges. A mission, you know, trip badge. We have all these badges that make us think, yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm doing okay. And, and we're so preoccupied with all these badges that we wear that make us feel good about ourselves that we fail to actually look at how we need to change, how our character needs to change. You know? We don't give a lot of energy to repenting of the idols of our heart that cause us to be irritable or short-tempered or anxious or restless or obsessed with having more junk, right? Because as long as I have these badges, I'm, I'm doing fine. Lastly, we're, we're too focused on what is seen. At the end of the chapter, Paul puts his finger on something that is central to understanding what God wants from us. It's central to interacting with God. And, and, and as he says it, you know, I, I said there were a lot of Jewish people that were part of the church here. He probably offended a lot of the Jewish people. Um, he probably just completely shattered their perspective about everything um, and made them be like, what was that, Paul? What are you talking about? When he starts talking about circumcision at the end, um, and he sums up what he's talking about here in the last two verses, He says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And for a Jewish person to hear that, they would have thought, you know, circumcision was one of those things that, you know, that is what defined you as a Jew, you know? I'm circumcised, so I'm part of the, at least all the guys, sorry ladies, I'm circumcised, I'm part of the, the, the community of God, you know? Uh, God loves me because I've done this thing, this outward thing, you know? Um, and Paul's like, actually, it's not about doing these outward things, these things that are seen by others, it's about something that is done inwardly. God doesn't want just some, some external, you know, righteousness. What he wants is a change of heart that is radical, where the the core of my being actually comes into alignment with who God is, with what he loves, with what he delights in, with what he values and what he wants. That's what God wants. He wants our heart. And the problem is, is that we, again, we we are we settle for something much lower. Just to kind of, we, we settle for this kind of external righteousness that is seen by other people. Um, where a lot of us are really good at looking good to other people. You know, we're, we're good at, uh, at, at just being really polite 
at holding the door for people, saying please and thank you. You know, coming to church and making sure that I, I, I you know, look, at least look like I have my act together. We're really good at, at making ourselves look good externally to others. And we, you know, collect those badges to make us look good externally. But God wants something way more than that. He wants our heart. He wants an internal change. Not just an outward circumcision, but an inward circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. And when we realize that, that, that's like, wait a second. Um, That means that God's bar for me is way higher than I could even imagine. It's not just about doing something nice for somebody to be seen by other people. It's actually having the right attitude in doing it. It means actually, truly, genuinely loving another person that's really hard to love, that I disagree with, that I'd rather hate. It means actually genuinely caring about that person, not just saying that I care. It means actually, truly rejoicing, feeling joy at, at who God is rather than just saying the words, singing the words, I sing the mighty power of God. It's actually being excited about the mighty power of God. And when I realize that that's what God wants for me, then all I can do is repent <laughs> because I am nowhere near that kind of righteousness. We're way too focused on what is seen. This is where God wants to lead us. He wants to lead us to a repentance, a repentance that is all-encompassing of my whole being, inside and out. And this is where we need to notice, I mean, this seems like, to me, that seems overwhelming. (laughs) I need, if this is where God wants to lead me, I need so much change. It's, it's way beyond anything that I can do. If he wants to circumcise my heart, how does that even happen? This is the thing, outward circumcision, don't want to get too graphic, but that can be done by the hands of men, right? It's something we can do. It's much easier to focus on things that we can do. I mean, inward circumcision, being circumcised by the Spirit, that's something more radical that's out of our hands. How do we do that? How does that happen? And I think this is where it's, it's, it's helpful to understand the meaning of circumcision. It's helpful to understand the meaning of circumcision. Among other things, one of the things that circumcision is meant to point us to. Um, circumcision was originally given by God in, in the book of Genesis to Abraham to be used by Abraham in order to be a, a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. See, God entered into a relationship with Abraham. And, uh, and, and, and it was called a covenant. The, the use of the word covenant was used often back in those times when, when tribes and peoples would come to an agreement with one another. They would enter into a relationship with one another where they would say, we're going to be committed to each other. And this commitment is going to be based on promises. That's what a covenant is. And so God enters into a covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to be committed to you. And we're going to promise to, to love one another and be in relationships with each other. And, and often when two peoples entered a covenant back in those days, whether they, this wasn't just in Israel, but in all different cultures, when two people entered into a covenant, they would have a ceremony. And part of that ceremony would involve a cutting up of an animal. They would cut an animal in half and shed blood, and they would walk between the pieces of the animal. 
And the whole reason for doing that would be to say, okay, this is a symbol of the fact that if we don't uphold our end of the bargain, of our, our part of the relationship, then may I be like this animal. May I be cut off from life. That's what the whole purpose of the shedding of blood and the cutting up of the animal was. And so when God enters into a covenant with Abraham, he says, I want you to be circumcised and to circumcise all of, the, all of your male children and all of, the, all of the male servants in your household. And so, do you see the connection here? Um, circumcision was meant to point Abraham to, to, to the reminder, to the fact that if he didn't uphold his end of the bargain, of his, his part of the relationship, may he be cut off from life, from God himself. And, uh, and that was supposed to communic- be communicated to, to all of the people of Israel th- throughout history. And, and as you look at the Old Testament, as you look at the people of Israel, how do they do in keeping up their end of the, of the relationship with God? Not good. Not good. But this is why God sends his son, Jesus. This is why God sends Jesus. Jesus comes into the world and he lives out the covenant with his father perfectly. He didn't deserve to die and yet he went to the cross. And when he died on the cross, he shed his blood and he became cut off from the father, cut off from life. He got what we deserve. And so the way to be circumcised internally is to, is to be joined to Jesus by the Spirit of God. That's how we experience internal circumcision, through the power of Jesus and what he has done for us. Paul actually talks about that in another one of his letters, in Colossians 2. He's talking to the church, he's talking to the Christians, and he, he says, you are circumcised, not with a circumcision done with the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ a spiritual circumcision. By being joined to Christ, we have been judged for our sins so that we don't have to answer for it anymore. And so this is pivotal, guys, because what, is it, what does it say in, in, in verse four, in chapter two? It says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. God doesn't want to say, I want you to look at your sin because I'm going to clobber you for it. God sent his son to die for us, to say, come near to me. Look at your sin and what I have done to cover it, to love you. His love, his sacrifices, his sacrifice for us beckons us to come near, to evaluate the ugliness of our hearts that we might turn to him and experience his grace. As I said at the beginning, we we have to do this if we want to understand and experience the gospel, we have to. If you're not willing to learn to live a lifestyle of repentance, daily repentance, you're gonna miss Jesus and how much he has done and how much he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this incredible gift that you have given us, the sacrifice of your son that he was willing to be cut off for us, to be cut off of life itself so that we wouldn't have to be, so that we could know you and live in your presence and sing joyfully of the fact that we belong to you. Father, we pray that you would help us, help us to turn 
inwardly to look at ourselves, to to pay attention, to be self-aware, to notice how far we have to go, to notice what we have to confess, and to notice our need for you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.